Hello everybody and welcome back to the Jack Throwful Show. We are back in the studio for episode 11. Lots to get into this week, so let's get started. I think first things first from me, I need to say a big thank you to everyone who's joined the show from last week's interview episode and everyone that checked out that great talk I had with Jonathan. It was really, really cool to get his insight on the inner workings of a Formula One team and his perspective on some of the sport's biggest questions. So yeah, big thank you to everyone that's checked out that. The clips on the YouTube channel as well have really got some good growth, got some good uh, engagement there. So I'm really glad you guys are all enjoying that. So I hope to deliver more great content this week. We've got the Daytona 24-hour uh, IMSA endurance race to break down. And we've also got a lot of action coming up at the end of this month. You know, we've got the IndyCar season opener at the end of this month in Florida. We've got the Daytona 500 NASCAR season opener coming up. And we've also got a very special NASCAR preseason event taking place at the LA Coliseum, a new investment for NASCAR at a new stage on the West Coast. They've built this track around this sort of multi-purpose concert venue thing. Super, super small, wide racetrack, which is going to create some really interesting racing scenarios. And especially having these new cars is going to present a really cool challenge for the NASCAR drivers because they've got this opportunity to check out the new cars before the real season opener in Daytona. You know, the clash in LA isn't a championship points event. It's not something that's going to have an influence on the rest of their season, but it is going to determine a little bit the sort of running order of the teams, the rivalries, who might be in the championship fight. The signs of that are probably going to become clear at this uh, exhibition event. Also, it's a really big opportunity for NASCAR to capitalize on the cool season they had last year. You know, things like the Bristol dirt track race, really, really cool sort of sporting racing spectacles that NASCAR is looking to create to sort of diversify its portfolio almost you know you have these incredible long endurance style 200 mile an hour chess match oval races like the Daytona 500 then you have these more traditional circuits like maybe Watkins Glen or the Daytona road course or the Indianapolis road course which present a different challenge to the drivers then you're throwing in something like the normal Bristol track which is a small more traditional oval built for smaller cars which brings up its own racing challenges also now you have this LA Coliseum track being brought in, which is going to be even smaller than Bristol, really, really wide, almost a sort of, you know, an oval, but like a really shrunken down oval, you know, fitting inside a, a concert venue. It's not really a big place. You know, the pits are actually not going to be in the infield because there's not enough room. They've really had to get creative with the track design here. So as an exhibition, as a spectacle, as a piece of racing product, I'm really excited for the LA clash at the Coliseum that's what they're calling it the clash at the Coliseum for the NASCAR preseason event and it's not really something we see in other categories to kind of produce this racing spectacle in a non-championship scenario but I think for NASCAR it's particularly important this year with their change into the new regulations giving those new regulation cars a new track a new format you know it's more of a sort of heat and final qualifying format with tournament brackets and, and jewels and, and that sort of thing i don't need to get into all the intricacies of it but it's not really a traditional sort of qualifying 50 cars line up in a big line driving an oval for four hours and you know fastest car wins it's more of a sort of short race structure where you're going to have eight 12 cars racing against each other top two qualify to the next round to the next round then the final race will be over an hour more endurance style but actually more of a sort of Grand Prix length than a traditional NASCAR 500 mile race. So it's going to be really, really cool to see how that all evolves and, and whether it can live up to the expectations. You know, it might be that the design of the track really limits the ability of NASCAR to show off the performance of its new cars and that they don't adapt very well. 
But if that does happen, really then that becomes a test for the drivers where they're going to be faced with that new challenge and they've got to pull time out of a car that isn't in its natural habitat or isn't adapting to the track well. In some ways, that's disappointing to see for the engineers, but it also presents that challenge for the drivers of how well can you adapt in that uncertain scenario. Really looking forward to that one to get a little bit of preseason insight into the NASCAR cars. I repeat, it's not a championship event, so it doesn't really matter the finishing order, but I think symbolically and also in terms of, like we spoke about with Jonathan last week, in terms of having it in the minds of the team and having a motivation to look positively towards the next year of racing, if you can put in a good performance at this preseason clash, it's really, really going to motivate the team to think, you know, the signs are there, the opportunity is there we've shown in this first instance that we can compete at a high level let's keep doing it for the rest of the year i think that's really where teams are going to look to draw motivation out of the event or maybe it'll show them the opportunities where they need to improve and the opportunities where if you come out of the weekend with a positive result there's a way to use that for motivation but also if you come out with a negative result you can use that for motivation as well so i think it's really important that the nascar teams you know use this opportunity in general to provide some sort of platform to build a championship challenge on once the real season gets underway. But it's also really important that they don't overrepresent it. You know, you can afford to make some mistakes and take some risks in this race. A little bit, it is about presenting a cool spectacle for the new fans, the investment for NASCAR in the West Coast. Traditionally, of course, it's a sport that has existed primarily in the Southeast of the USA and Texas and, and the sort of general South. Recently, and you know, it's wrong to say that it stayed there through its whole history. It, it was at a time purely because of its following in that area, you know, the most popular spectator sport in America. So you can't say that it's purely limited to just a small area of, of the states of some real hardcore fans because it's not factually accurate. It once was an incredibly popular sport. And I think the move from NASCAR to make these significant investments in infrastructure on the West Coast, looking to get back to those days, looking to get back to being at the top, the NFL at the moment in America is experiencing incredible growth in fan engagement, viewership, gambling, all that kinds of stuff. The NFL is the king at the moment in America, and it's working as a model for these teams, these other sports, to replicate and to try and bring in some of that renewed passion for sport and challenge and competition and gambling, a lot of gambling. NASCAR needs to really get involved in that if it's going to take on the NFL as one of America's biggest sports. It's looking to, to learn some lessons from what they've been able to achieve in their year-on-year -year growth throughout the last decade. NASCAR definitely needs some of that. As we see Formula One taking over in America, NASCAR needs its slice of the pie too. So it's going to be really interesting to see the impact of this LA race, how the media coverage is, whether they're able to live up to the expectations. I'll keep you all clued in on that. I'll do my research and uh, get you all the facts, let you know next week how that all gets underway. And as we've touched on the upcoming NASCAR season opener at Daytona, it's important that we also mention the 24-hour IMSA race that took place last weekend at the Daytona, using part of that tri-oval famous NASCAR track, but also using the infield circuit to create a little bit more of a challenging track. Left and right turns for the drivers, you know. But the Daytona 24-hour, it's a really, really cool event. It's a bit like the World Endurance Championship. It's that sort of format which means you have four different classes of cars all racing on track at the same time and actually five different classes of drivers because you have 
the GT cars split into pro and amateur categories. So it sets up a really cool style of racing where you have the top class of car being this sort of Le Mans style prototype, really massive bodywork, cockpit right in the middle, but not open wheel, similar speeds to that of a Formula One car, but it's achieving them in a very, very different way with its bodywork. Much more aerodynamically efficient, designed to be more more protected i suppose a little bit more room to rub a little bit more bodywork to lose you can afford to have a little bit more contact you know a bit less sensitive to that than an open wheel car would be when you have that closed wheel format you know more bodywork to allow rubbing up against curbs and, and barriers and stuff but also the internal engineering of them much more targeted at being able to race for 24 hours you have refueling and, and tire stop strategy completely different to that of a formula one race a little bit hard to keep track of throughout the whole 24 hour period but i think the broadcast team did a really good job keeping people informed it was really an action-packed race winning the race was elio castro neves with the maya shank racing team his teammates and him were able to put together a really brilliant challenge throughout that 24 hour period and if elio castro neves rings a bell it's because he won the indy 500 for his fourth time in his career in 2021 with the same Maya Shank team. So he's looking to work with that team, not only in their IndyCar format and not only in the IndyCar development, he's going to be racing an IndyCar full-time with them this year. But he's also looking at their endurance formats. He was able to take the win at the Rolex 24-hour, which is the official name for the Daytona 24-hour. Castro Neves was able to take the win last year with a different team. And Maya Shank, after picking him up to do the Indy 500 run in 2021, renewed his sort of opportunity to compete in the Daytona 24-hour again this year. It's been a really, really successful period, you know, 2021 and 2022 already for Elio Castro Neves. And we'll see whether he's able to compete in a, a season-long championship campaign in the IndyCar series, you know, throughout the year. In IndyCar, we also have Roman Grosjean stepping up to a top, top team with the Andretti car. He should be putting together a pretty significant championship challenge in IndyCar this year. And if Castro Neves with all his experience, and now this win second year in a row at the Daytona 24-hour, Castro Neves could well be in that fight too if his car is up to the standards of competition. Also worth mentioning, in the LMP2 class, IndyCar drivers Pato O'Ward and Colton Herter teamed up to bring home a win in their category. So the LMP2 cars, similar looking to the LMP1, a little bit smaller, a little bit smaller power units, less aggressive aerodynamics, set to be that sort of second-tier car. But you can imagine, you know, if you're a Formula One fan listening to this, it can be hard to imagine what that style of racing is going to look like. But when you're giving a 24-hour period for a race to take place, the idea of sort of blue flags and lapping and stuff, you become almost numb to it. And, and the task for the driver is to overtake everyone as quickly as possible. And the rules of the discipline of, you know, not holding someone up who's in a higher class car than you and or, or letting them pass immediately. It's a little bit more fluid in terms of like, well, if there's a car in front of you, you know, if you're in an LMP1 car, you're flying around at Formula 1 speeds, high, high cornering speed. But up the road from you is a Porsche 911 in the GT category being driven maybe even by an amateur driver. It is still your risk as the car, the faster car, the overtaking car. It's part of your skill package as a driver to be able to safely get around the slower moving car. In Formula 1, it's almost something where the blue flags that are, are, you know, complaining about, oh, this guy's holding me up, give him a blue flag. And it's the role of the guy in front to, to get out the way immediately. 
But I think the approach to that when you have so many cars on track at the same time, and importantly, so many different cars, I think the style of racing is, is just cooler because you can have two Porsches battling it out. We saw this throughout the last sort of 20 minutes of the race in the Pro GT class, uh, Lawrence Vanthor and Matthew Jamet, the two Porsches, absolutely titanic battle for about 20, 25 minutes. You know, they'd, they'd been going back and forth for the lead a lot of the 24-hour period, but it really sort of came to fruition in the last 20 minutes where they were just having this absolutely mega battle, corner by corner, trading positions, dive bomb, contact, whatever you like. But they were keeping it fair. You know, they, were, they both knew that they were at the end of this incredible 23-and-a-half-hour slog to get to the finish of this race, and they weren't about to throw it all away with a DNF or ending up in the curb or a barrier with five, ten minutes to go. That would be pretty tragic to see, but they were pretty much giving it everything else. I mean, they weren't, they weren't looking to DNF each other, but they were about as close as you can get to that line without going over it, and it was some really, really cool racing there. The reason I bring that up is because about what, what I was saying before about the different categories. When there are two drivers in the slowest category of cars that are having a battle like that, you're an LMP1 car or an LMP2 car coming up behind that battle. Not only do you have one slow-moving car to get past, you have two, and you have two cars that, you know, neither of them want to sacrifice anything to let the LMP2 car or the LMP1 car go past. Neither one wants to get out of the way because for them, it's going to sacrifice a position in their own battle in the GT class. So it just, it creates, I think, a really, really cool dynamic watching it, something that is distinctly different to the racing products we see it in, you know, MotoGP, more of a straight, high drama, sort of 45-minute shootout. What you see is what you get with MotoGP. It's just an, an absolute straight fight. Some kind of tactics that are taking place in a 24-hour race may be really hard to kind of get your head around in terms of, you know, what the fuel strategy should be or the tyre strategy. Where the pace is going to come from is going to be a little bit harder to work out, a little bit more complicated. And, you know, there might be things that are set up in the first two hours of the race a decision that's made on fuel strategy that isn't going to pay dividends until right at the end because it might be, you know, some kind of undercut play where you're relying on the behavior of other people. It can be hard to sort of digest the reality of, of everything that's going on. But when you mix that in with the sort of racing product of, of all these different classes of cars, all these different categories racing together, it's really, really great. And I think the highlights package has been really cool to watch. Drivers developing their skills, you know, drivers from endurance backgrounds traditional endurance drivers mixing it in with ex-formula one drivers indycar drivers nascar drivers people looking to use these 24-hour endurance races as a way to build up their skills we touched on last week max verstappen in the virtual le mans race he was using that as a genuine serious opportunity to showcase his driving talent to lead a team but also to increase his skills, you know, to get practice in a different category, in a different car, track he doesn't usually race at. It's really important to these drivers to use every opportunity they have to get better, to get faster, to get more thorough, better understanding of the mechanical sympathy of the car, drivers around you hone that driving style in. The more the better, I think, is the approach. And you're seeing that not only in Max Verstappen's virtual approach, but also a lot of these IndyCar drivers now looking to IMSA, looking to the American Endurance Series, looking to hone their skills there. Really, really cool to see. So congratulations to Elio Castro Neves on a really successful 2021 and maybe an even more successful 2022. Starting it off with this win has been really cool. If he can put together another 500 challenge this year in the Indy 500 in the summer, or if he can put together a championship challenge throughout the year, 
to have him go up alongside O'Ward and Herter and these other IndyCar young stars, Alex Pelot, last year's champion. Castroneves, you know, he's, he's an old dog. He's experienced. So that experience, that success, these high, high level racing performances that he's putting in, despite his age, if he's able to, you know, destabilize the uh, driver market in IndyCar a little bit by showing that maybe these young European junior formula guys or these young Indy Lights guys might not be uh, all they're cracked up to be and the old dog can come take some points off of them for the season, it's going to be a really, really cool message. And him and Grosjean both sort of representing that. Let's see what happens. But I think it could be a really great storyline. Alongside the Daytona 24-hour, we also had the opening rounds of the Formula E season last weekend in Diria in Saudi Arabia. Really, really cool track there. Quite dusty offline. It presents a really interesting challenge for the drivers. There's about a 10% power increase in Formula 1 this year and a new qualifying format. So plenty of changes to go around, even if relative to other categories like Formula 1 and NASCAR, the changes aren't so significant in the cars directly. Changes to the qualifying format and also a little bit of a power increase in the cars, some small aerodynamic changes, some small power unit changes. Still bringing up some new challenges for the Formula E season. And the champion, Nick De Vries, Mercedes development driver, he's looking to go back to back in his championships and really state his name at the top of the open wheel driver market. Unfortunately for him, it looks like he's going to have a pretty big challenge this year. His teammate Stoffel van Dorn, who was an ex-McLaren Formula 1 driver when he was younger, has really, really made some great progress with his speed and his driver development. He's looking to put together a championship challenge like he did last year. Unluckiness and, and a bit of brilliance, really, from Nick de Vries kept Stoffel van Dorn back from winning the title last year. But he's really looking to make an impact early and, and put his challenge together as well. So both of these Mercedes drivers are really locked into a tight championship battle. Even we can see that from the first two rounds. Alongside that, you also have the Rocket Venturi team led by Susie Wolf, wife of Toto Wolf. She has been really, really crucial in building that Rocket Venturi team to the team it is now. And for it to be a team that is going to be fighting for the title this year. You know, it's got Lucas Degrassi, one of its drivers, an ex-champion of Formula E, and also Eduardo Mortara, who won the second race last weekend he's also racing with that team and he was able to put together in the second round a really really brilliant performance and state his claim over Degrassi in in that team so really at a minimum you've already got a sort of four-way title fight this year in Formula E it looks like there's plenty of cars that are going to be able to be near the front of qualifying to explain a little bit about what the new qualifying format is and its impact for the races it's basically splitting the grid down the middle into group A and group B Group A and B each go out and do a traditional qualifying session where you have all the cars in the group on track at the same time, trying to set their fastest one lap time, right? Standard, that's what we've been used to in most open wheel racing categories and most categories around the world, really. Where Formula E is looking to innovate is it saying, okay, we take top half of both of those groups, put them together so you're left with 10 drivers at the end of the first round of qualifying with the group A and B. You're left with 10. How do we put those 10 drivers in an order without just getting them to repeat the same qualifying format that got them into the first half. You know, we could just send them back out, have the next fastest 10 do another set of individual time lapse and, and see who can do the best. You know, but that's already happening all around the world. And that's something that it works. You know, it's a sort of clean format. It's going to always reward who's the fastest in the moment and who's the fastest out of all of them. You know, they're all competing against each other. It's a straight fight to be who can be fastest, right? That's why that format has become so popular. 
what Formula E is looking to do is say, all right, well, where can we take that, turn it into a more exciting racing product? So what they've done instead is once you have that group of the, of the top drivers of that weekend, you pair them up into a sort of dual format where you have one will go out first, little gap, second driver will go out, and those two drivers are locked in a knockout battle. So the fastest one of those two drivers, instead of the fastest of the whole group, gets moved on to the next round, and then he has another battle, and then he has another battle, and then he has another battle, and if he wins that, then he wins the final when you're on pole, right? So it's not a race. It, they are still trying to just set their fastest possible lap times, but they're going out one behind the other with a clean track for the rest of the circuit. You know, they're just heading out of the garage one behind the other. It's more obvious where the differences in their lap times are because you're seeing the two laps basically side by side. And it's more interesting when you have, you know, the little sector times every few meters of track almost. Has he gained time here? Has he gained time here? Who's winning this little micro sector? Who's up on the delta? Who needs to take a risk here? Who needs to improve? It was really cool to see this weekend how that qualifying format was able to present something different, to take a risk. You know, Formula E is saying that, look, they know their position in the racing world is, yeah, it's sustainable. It's a different option. It's a different style of marketing to Formula One. It's a different racing product. But they know that, especially in the gap between Formula One seasons, there is an opportunity to, to show people something new because people, at the end of the day, they, they like, I think, to see the rules be changed and to, to see new ideas be brought to the forefront. You know, the Formula One sprint weekends, regardless of what you think about whether they added anything to the weekend or whether they were actually the right move for the spirit of racing that we want to see in Formula One, it's undeniable they brought an uptick in broadcast viewers. Undeniable every single time they were used. More people watched, more people attended on Saturday. And I think Formula E is looking to kind of capitalize on a similar effect with this dual format as, you know, look, it's not... It's not like the sprint race. It's not like they're dueling in the sense that they're both racing each other and the first one across the line wins. But it's that they're still trying to do this fastest lap time qualifying approach, but in a sort of one-on-one -on -one setting. So the manifestation of that is probably more driver rivalries, you know, more, more relationships being tested. If you get two teammates up against each other in this format, what are they going to do? That kind of question is raised quite often. And I think it's also going to present a really interesting challenge when, when things like that come up. You know, but that is only qualifying, so we should get on to talking about the races. Round one, Nick DeVries took a relatively dominant victory. He was on pole position. Him, Van Dorn and Dennis uh, all pulled away. Jake Dennis, that is. All pulled away. That podium looking really strong. Oliver Askew was making his debut. Oliver Askew is an American-Swedish driver uh, who was the 2019 Indy Lights champion. He was able to take home points in his first Formula E race this weekend with a P10. Really, really great race from him. But Oliver Askew, he's you know a newcomer. Like we're talking about Castro Neves making this jump into IndyCar again. Oliver Askew probably had the opportunity to race in IndyCar and he you know said that maybe it's better off uh, if he takes that Formula E seat. I think at the end of 2021 in the IndyCar season, Oliver Askew was kind of presented with this opportunity pitted against a Formula 2 driver called Christian Lungard. So Askew and Lungard in America and IndyCar kind of fighting for the same seat in IndyCar. Lungard ended up winning that battle. So Askew's had to take this opportunity in Europe with the Formula E races, or Europe in the Middle East with the Formula E races, 
And he's clearly, you know, he's making best of that opportunity. He wasn't able to put in the performances he needed in America to clinch that IndyCar seat, even though he was able to win the junior Formula Indy Series in America. Wasn't able to roll that into a full-time IndyCar seat. So he's come over to Europe, come over to the Middle East, have a go in Formula E, and he's making it count, which is really, really great to see. Scoring points in your first ever round, your first ever race, something that we saw Yuki Tsunoda do this year in Formula One. And everyone was raving about how impressive that was. Formula E is mad. I mean, Formula E, you know, there is less difference between the top and the bottom teams, but there is still a difference. And if you're caught at the back of a Formula E race or you're caught, at a, you know, with not the best equipment in a really tight track, cars that can handle a bit of rubbing, can handle a bit of barrier contact and can handle a bit of wheel to wheel racing. When you're a rookie going into that environment, I'm sure it's really, really intimidating. And I think we saw kind of the worst aspect of that with Antonio Giovinazzi. We know Antonio from Alfa Romeo Formula One last year and, and for the last three years. He was last of ev every single finisher in the first round. Giovinazzi was last, about 45 seconds behind his teammate. And, you know, look, it's your first round ever, but it was also Oliver Askew's first round ever. So what's your excuse? You know, I think it's tricky. But in both rounds, in both rounds, Giovinazzi was last of the finishers and a significant margin behind his teammate. So whether it is the handling characteristics of the car or he's not meshing with the team or he's just not feeling confident, the track design hasn't got something figured out yet. Hopefully we'll see a bit of a resurgence from Giovinazzi, but in terms of the new rookies in Formula E, Askew looking particularly strong, which is really, really cool to see. Now in that second race, as I spoke about earlier, it wasn't Van Dorn or De Vries that was able to take home the win. It was actually Eduardo Mortara with that Rocket Venturi team led by Susie Wolf. He was the one who was really able to maximize opportunity in that instance. De Vries was leading, but a big thing with Formula E is this thing called attack mode. And it's a little bit Mario Kart. It's a little bit, I don't know, farcical and invented and, you know. But the way Formula E looks to innovate in that instance, which you can imagine exactly like Mario Kart, it's like a little sort of boost pad. And there's a sensor on your car, a sensor on the track. You go over the attack mode activation zone and your car gets a 50 kilowatt increase in power, right? And 50 kilowatts is pretty significant, but you sacrifice a little bit of time going off and, and collecting the attack mode activation, right? So the idea, the way it generates racing is, look, you have a fast car leading, but you, you know that you have to take the attack mode at some point, right? So a guy out in front is leading, but you have to take the attack mode. So you take the attack mode, you drop back to third, fourth, whatever it is, after you leave the activation zone, but you have a faster car. So now you've dropped backwards, but through going through the activation zone, you've been given a faster car. And by having a fast car not be in first and have to overtake people, that's how you get racing. So that's kind of the logic. And I think it works because it sets up when you don't have pit stops and you don't exactly have similar Grand Prix format in every way in Formula E, the idea of an attack mode, it still plays into some element of strategy. Another big strategy element in Formula E is energy management, which is another sort of layer they, they've added on to add a challenge for the teams where you have like Formula One cars running under fueled and trying to make it with as little weight as possible to the finish. The idea of weight isn't as significant, obviously, in Formula E because the cars don't lose weight as they're driving around. But they do have a capacity limit on how much energy they're able to use throughout the race and the problem with that is once you give a team a racing team a limit they're going to get as close to it as they can without going over and more often than not 
they're going to go over. So a thing you see with Formula E quite a lot of the time is people just running out of energy towards the end or they get caught in a battle at the start of the race, use too much energy early on because of, you know, a, a present bias or whatever it is, use too much energy early on, sacrifice the end of the race. You can also have the reverse of that where you can have, you know, an idea of like a fuel saving strategy in Formula One or an energy saving strategy in Formula E. You stick back, you don't get in caught in fights at the front. And then later on in the race, you're able to utilize a higher leftover energy store to make some moves and, and put some power down when other people are, are dwindling, right? There are all these sort of layers that we're talking about. But the reason I brought up attack mode was because in the second race, it was Nick DeVries' attack mode strategy that really held him back and gave up the lead. A surging Mortara and a surging Degrassi were both able to make that gap up and, and, and able to put a challenge together. And once they started racing in a pack, it was really an audacious move from Degrassi that started it all off, pushed DeVries offline, they both start battling. DeVries gets shuffled down to third and Mortara and Degrassi both get through. Degrassi's leading for a little bit. Then Mortara sticks the move on his teammate. DeVries is still stuck in third and still hasn't taken his attack mode. Degrassi and Mortara have both used their attack mode already to get past DeVries into the lead, right? So DeVries basically was the one who got taken advantage of in the strategy and was kind of the, the pawn while the other two were using their attack mode strategy to the best of their advantages. And purely through his own driving skill, Mortara was able to win in that straight fight and his pace was really shining through there. So Rocket Venturi versus Mercedes, Susie Wolf versus Mercedes. There's your storyline for Formula E this year. But we also, you know, it's only the first two rounds. There could be a championship challenge from any of the other teams. Who remains to be the top driver in Formula E this year, we don't know. The DS to Cheetah team, they're likely to be in the fight. They had Antonio Felix da Costa and John Eric Verne as their drivers last year. And those are two really great drivers, and that's a team with a lot of investment. So you would expect them to be near the top as well. Hopefully they can put it together and really get in the mix too. That would be really cool. And obviously I do hope Giovinazzi is able to put together a better challenge. It really just seems like he's struggling at the moment with that car style and with the development and with maybe just the format of the whole series you know the new qualifying format isn't really favorable to rookies because more likely in that situation you're going to get pitted up against a driver with more experience than you who might be faster than you and you're going to get knocked out in the early rounds unless you can put a real significant challenge and, and be you know the guy with the lap time in uh in those duels i really hope Giovinazzi can make it up and and really at least maybe a podium, a couple podiums this year. I, I think he can do it. And I really, um, I, I hope the team gets behind him as well, because I'm sure it can be challenging when you have a new driver coming in like Giovinazzi. Formula One experience, Formula One points, Q3 appearances, teammate to Kimi Raikkonen, and a lot of times beat Kimi Raikkonen one-on-one -on -one in the same car. He's coming into Formula E, and he's at the back all of a sudden. And, you know, this isn't, this isn't representative of his actual driving skill, so there's got to be something going on. But I hope it gets sorted out soon enough and I hope Formula E alongside IndyCar, alongside NASCAR, alongside Formula One can deliver us a brilliant 2022 season. Alongside MotoGP as well, of course, with a little bit of MotoGP testing going on at the moment. Teams are kind of in their private tests, getting the bikes all sorted out for the next year. That's going to be really, really awesome as well when that championship opens up and gets underway. In terms of other headlines from the Formula E weekend, in the second race, Stoffel Van Dorn was able to put in a really great performance to move up from 12th position at the start to P7 at the end. The race finished under safety car, so there wasn't a huge opportunity right at the end for him to claim any more places, but it was still a really good performance for him to get those significant points. There's another formatting thing with Formula E where 
if you are the championship leader or you are the winner of the previous race or you're in a good position in the championship because of your finishes in the previous races they sort of subvert that by putting you at a bit of a disadvantage in the next qualifying session to close that championship up and, and kind of stop any dominance so van dorn after coming second in the previous race was shuffled back in qualifying but still able to make up significant valuable points in formula e points do not come easily in formula e especially if you're starting at the back it's really really easy to get caught up in the tight track any kind of incident or puncture or wing damage or anything can ruin your race when you're stuck in the middle of the back like that so for van dorn to pull that performance out a lot of drivers in that same situation could easily have been caught in a crash or could easily have you know got the red mist to descend down and, and not been happy with they were you know starting p12 to be overly aggressive and put the move on someone and, and end up in an incident you can imagine that situation getting underway but van dorn didn't really fall into that trap which was really really impressive by the end of the race de Vries had dropped all the way down to p10 after being in the podium positions for so long his energy management and his attack mode strategy held him back so van dorn's really really putting that challenge on even though de Vries was able to take the win in the first race really seems like that team is set up for a, a full year-long battle there which is what we all want to see really really cool stuff another really cool exhibition event that's also taking place this weekend alongside the nascar la oval clash thing is a thing in europe called the race of champions which is something that looks to take european drivers from all kinds of different categories open wheel touring car rally rally cross all that good stuff and they put them together in this sort of massive stadium show thing where they run two cars side by side on a really short track and they do a sort of head-to-head -head shootout thing a little bit actually a little bit like the formula e qualifying format right but particularly this year because the formula one season was so amazing i think people are quite desperate almost for any kind of action from the formula one drivers and that's what the race of champions is going to deliver you've got sebastian vettel valtteri bottas and mick schumacher and I think David Coulthard, some other ex-Formula 1 drivers, but, you know, those three from last season, really, really going to be cool to see them back out on track, especially uh, Seb and Mick Schumacher together is going to be really, really special. Seb has some great historic moments with Michael, the race of champions in Germany, them racing together when Sebastian Vettel was a Red Bull driver. They shared some really, really brilliant and, and inspirational moments at the race of champions to see Sebastian Vettel and Mick Schumacher race together on track at the same event where Sebastian Vettel and Michael Schumacher shared so many great moments and, and whatever, it's going to be a really, really cool moment. And I just hope it's a great event. I think it's really going to present a cool challenge. One thing they're doing this year at the Race of Champions, it's going to be a snow event, a sort of rally stage style format. They've done dirt, they've done asphalt before. Now they're moving on to snow. So maybe Valtteri could be the underdog. You know, the Finnish rally drivers, the Swedes. They have that knack for snow. They have that intuition, that car feel. They just seem to have that sixth sense for it. So maybe Bottas could uh, could take a win here. But I really hope that's going to be a great event as well. I'm sure you'll see any of the best racing action coming out from that. I'll make sure to get it posted on my pages if I can, but definitely check that out. But I think with that, then we can wrap up this week's show. It's been a really cool one this week covering NASCAR and endurance racing and Formula E. Looking to get a bit more balance across the categories and, and bring you all the best stories from the racing world. Once again, I'll thank all the new listeners from the show. Last week's interview was very Formula One heavy and really, really great knowledge base for anyone looking to get into Formula One or looking to find a job in Formula One. 
or just to understand a little bit more about the inner workings of a Formula One team and a high-performing Formula One team. So I'll say one more time, thank you very much for listening both to last week's episode and to this episode. This has been the Jack Throwful Show, and I'll be back next week with more of the world's best racing action. I will let the intro song play you out. (laughs) 